Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Welcome to this special spotlight episode of a podcast of one's own. In these episodes, we take a deep dive into the latest research, news and ideas on gender equality. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Elise Stevenson, one of the incredible researchers from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, to talk all about her work on gender equality and diversity in space. Yes, you heard that right, in space. Elise is a multi-award winning gender researcher whose work seeks to tackle gender inequality at the frontiers in areas such as climate justice, international affairs, and even, as we'll be discussing today, outer space. Elise is the Deputy Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University and was awarded the 2022 Fulbright Scholar and overall outstanding young alumnus for 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Elise. Thanks so much for having me here. So to start us off, what got you interested in this area of research? You could argue that there's more than enough gender inequality to keep us occupied here on Earth. So why is it important to tackle this issue on an intergalactic level? Yeah, I think that that's a really good question. And for me, I suppose it comes back to three core reasons. Firstly, in my field of research, which has kind of spanned everything from political science to national security, there's been this theory that new institutions established in more gender equal times should be more gender equal. So if we look at an area like space exploration and our endeavours in space, This is what we'd consider quite a new institution. And by that nature, we should hopefully expect to see greater gender equality in this space. Now, that's not necessarily the case, and that's quite troubling. And I think it really asks this question of, okay, well, if we can't get it right now, when we've perhaps had the best opportunity possible to ingrain equality and justice right from the start, then when can we actually achieve these sorts of things? So I guess that's the first reason. But for me, I also think that you talk about we've got enough issues here on Earth, why tackle it on an intergalactic level? And I completely agree. But I would argue that space isn't just out there, but it's down here too. So we rely on satellites and all kinds of space technologies for telecommunications, for education, for really critical both military and civilian purposes. 
And so also major kind of technological advancements and innovations have often come from research that's developed out of NASA or some of the space agencies that we've then been able to apply to kind of our earthly endeavours. So it's really, I guess, much more embedded. It's not just about this really cool space that's up there in the skies and in the stars that we don't have access to, but the technologies and the sector really is down here. And and I love it. I was just talking to a colleague who works with NASA the other day, and she really eloquently says, you know, space is a place that reflects Earth, and it's it's not actually really separate to what we're doing down here. So if I can get the last point, and I'm, a, I'm an academic, so, you know, I apologize, everyone. If, if this turns into a lecture, I'll try to curb that. But I guess the, the, the third point for me is that the ramifications for getting this wrong are quite major. So for me, we're not talking about the effect of gender inequality for the next five or 10 or even 100 years in space. If we don't have women at the frontier and at the, at the forefront, if we don't have First Nations people, we don't have people of different ethnicities and disabilities, sexualities and other backgrounds, then really we're limiting who gets to decide on whether we settle future planets, whether we mine them, who benefits from our space engagement. That's really held in the small hands of a small few, I suppose. And I think that that's really worrying. So I think this is an intergenerational issue. And if we can get it right now, then that also sets a precedent going forwards for any future planets that we may or may not settle. You think more people should be in on this decision than Elon Musk? 100%. I think that was one of the the first reasons why I started this research. I was like, oh my goodness, are we only going to see rich white men populate the moon or Mars? And if so, there's going to be some sustainability issues. So if you can lay the foundations for us and just give us a mini history lesson on women in space, when did a woman first fly out, I suppose I should say, fly up to space? And what has the story been since then in terms of gender diversity in the field? So most of kind of our major space agencies, I guess, really kicked off in the 50s, US and and Russia kind of being at the forefront there. It was then in 1963 that Valentina Tereshkova from the Soviet Union first flew to space and she was up there for 70 hours. She did 48 laps of of the Earth. And it was really interesting because firstly, she was 26 years old at the time, which I find amazing. I mean, I certainly wasn't flying, you know, to space at 26. But secondly... Her flight was actually used as kind of Cold War propaganda. You know, this really progressive Soviet society was able to send a woman up to space. Now, this is something that the US weren't doing at the time. So because of the way in which kind of uh, our space endeavors in the US were structured, you had to be a military test pilot to fly. It wasn't actually until another 19 more years until the second woman got to space. And it was the third woman, Sally Ride, who was the first United States woman who headed up in 1983. Now, she's got some interesting stories, which I might share a little bit later. But, you know, since these first kind of space flight, there's been all kinds of things that have come out about the gendered nature of space. And fundamentally, this understanding that because women often weren't included as key decision makers or engineers or specialists or astronauts, that their needs weren't necessarily considered when it came to designing missions, designing spacesuits, designing all manner of things, as well as thinking about how things like space actually affects women's bodies. So 
We've had movies like Hidden Figures you might have seen, which popularised some of the hard work that black women in the United States in particular were doing behind the scenes, which never really got recognised. And I think many of us can relate to that across different fields, not just space. But what it's built into over time has been that we're still in a place right now where only one in five space industry workers are women. We have statistics from some of the space forces and space commands, which are the military side of space operations, and they're also under around 20%. So it's been interesting, I suppose. It's taken a long time, firstly, to get women into space, to get multiple women into space, and now to think about the wider industry. And we're still experiencing all kinds of, I guess, gender gaps, and importantly, not a whole lot of transparency around these and data. Thanks for that background. And for anybody who hasn't watched it, I would recommend the movie Hidden Figures. It does get you to think about these issues and it's uh, very well done. Now, at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we're gearing up for a huge space conference as we speak, key insights of which will be on the Jewel ANU YouTube channel shortly after this episode goes out. So please do check that out in the show notes. Can you tell us a bit about the research happening in this area right now and why is this a critical moment to bring people together in a conference format? I think we are so excited to be able to run this conference firstly. Nothing like it's been done in Australia so far. So we feel that this is kind of the moment that we bring people together to be able to get insights, to understand the actual status quo of what's happening in the space sector and to be able to share, I guess, learnings from other sectors that we might be able to apply to the space sector. Really, the important thing about this is that we're not redesigning the wheel, but we have kind of major room for improvement in terms of applying a lot of what we know about what works in getting gender equality or other forms of diversity and equality from different industries into the space sector. So together with some of my colleagues, so Dr. Cassandra Steer and Professor Meredith Nash, we've got together to run this conference, but it's also underpinned by research. So everything we do here at Jewel is to develop evidence base that can be then used for policy and practice. So firstly, we're seeking to map all of the issues. And this is quite an undertaking, I suppose, because when looking at not just, you know, how are women represented or not represented in the sector, but also things like leadership, their experiences working in the sector, uh, harassment and discrimination, looking at things like, you know, are missions being designed for them, are spacesuits and, you know, other uniforms being designed for them. And we're also looking at things like space security too. So we often think about here on, on Earth, global insecurity is a really big topic. And of course, when you start to open up the world, to new planets, of course, that raises new security concerns. So what are the gender ramifications of those? And how can we ensure that women are really in the room at every stage of the process? So I've got a bit of focus on the Australian and United States space industries, and I'll be heading over to the US a little bit later this year to do a lot of that research. But in essence, because we've got so many major data gaps This is why it's really, really important, I think, to to kind of narrow down on what are the issues. You can also participate. So we're really excited to be launching some of our surveys and interviews at that time. And how much resistance do you get to this kind of agenda? I mean, I'm old enough to remember uh, the men landing on the moon and Neil Armstrong's famous words as he first uh, jumped out of the space module onto the moon where he said, 
you know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You know, it was all framed in that way. And I must admit back then it didn't even really strike as jarring that it was framed in that way. Do you still get the sense that there are people in the industry associated with space exploration who were still very comfortable with that kind of language and that kind of thought process? Absolutely. It's it's in the kind of treaties that we've got on the outer space to start with. So the Outer Space Treaty, for instance, talks about, you know, space being the province of all mankind. And we're still seeing a lot of this language. And I think to go to your first point around pushback, just like every other kind of sector there is across the world, yes, there are elements that are, are pushing back against kind of this importance around diversity and and including women and, and ensuring they're in leadership. And we are seeing a little bit of this narrative of, look, haven't we already solved all the gender equality issues yet? It's always such a problematic narrative, firstly, because we haven't. And, you know, we know from United Nations data that we're still many hundreds of years away from actually coming close to attaining gender equality. But also we know that progress isn't linear. We know that there's been backsliding during COVID. I think it was really interesting that the space sector wasn't as affected by COVID. So there was a lot of, you know, we saw a lot of kind of the first commercial space flights that were happening during this time, you know, NASA and other organizations committing to, you know, putting the first woman and person of color on the moon. So we're kind of seeing a lot of initiatives, I suppose, that are signifying that progress is being made. But beyond those kind of token movements, I do wonder, you know, how much change we're actually seeing. And I think the point that you make about language is a good example of this. So globally, language like mankind, (laughs) man and mankind is certainly still very much so used when it comes to space. Now, this is problematic for a number of reasons. Firstly, if we only talk about men and mankind, where does that leave women? Secondly, you know, I know it is used generally to mean humankind. However, if we just use gendered language, then it reinforces narratives and myths and debate and kind of reinforces a gendering of space when it actually doesn't need to be. We have plenty of gender neutral language out there and it's used in lots of other different spaces. So it's a manner of kind of catching up. Dr. Cassandra Steer, who I mentioned earlier, has been doing a lot of interesting research on this too and the kind of language that's used in the space treaty. And she's found that even though mankind is used in English-speaking languages, actually more gender-neutral language is evidenced in other languages. So it's not impossible. I think that we can do it. And I think that it's a real opportunity if we could change that language. And the second one I'd change would be colonization. We hear a lot about colonizing moon or Mars, right? We've had enough troubles with colonization. I don't think we want to repeat those issues of the past. So language does matter. It ultimately frames our reality and our world. And we actually know that we can do better. What would you say to someone who put to you that, really, this has been about men going to space because this is obviously a task that has all sorts of physical consequences and that you need the you know, strength that men have to deal with the physical consequences of being in space. I mean, I think we're all familiar with the Hollywood movies, which uh, replicate G-forces and things like that for us. Who knows how accurate they are? Hollywood making things up. Who knew? Does physiology factor into this at all? 
how much do we know about this and how much do we know about how being in space affects women's bodies? Is it different? You know, as I mentioned earlier, I've come from a national security background and that's certainly been a big argument about keeping women out of the armed forces and out of combat. But you know what? Technology's changed and actually more and more we're seeing that the kinds of characteristics, abilities, now all of that that is needed to be able to work in these quite hostile and remote and extreme environments, humans are very diverse within genders and across genders, that that doesn't necessarily match up to be any sort of limitation. And in fact, in the 1960s, Dr. Lovelace, who was working with NASA around basically testing pilots for them to be able to go through to become astronauts, and he took a cohort of women who at that time couldn't actually be selected as astronauts, but he wanted to put them through the same physical tests just to see, well, could that be able to do the same work? So there was 13 women who passed the test, then called them Mercury 13, and they outperformed men at almost every domain when it came to that kind of physical tests and rigor. So I think that that's fascinating. If you have a look at some of the research of Associate Professor Alice Gorman, who's here in Australia, she's looked into kind of this issue. And, you know, although she says, um, and this was from 2020, so the statistics might have shifted slightly, although 90% of all astronauts have been men, the future is likely to be female. And this is because, in general, women take up less space, in general, they consume less, and in general, they produce less waste. Now, these sorts of things really matter if you are essentially in a tin can hurtling up to space where limited resources and ability to process waste and all these sorts of things really constrain us. So that's actually what we're seeing as a benefit or unique attribute that women have maybe over men. But having said that, we still have a lot of gaps. And I guess the that kind of physical side of things and medical side of things, we know that we've got big gaps in knowledge around how space affects fertility or wider effects on health and also the reality of being on trapped space uh, where you're also very isolated from headquarters and home and family and all of those things. How can you then deal with what happens when things go wrong and sexual harassment, harassment, you know, bullying, all of these sorts of things become even more important issues. And what about the kit, the space suits, those sorts of things? You know, have there been any issues about women being catered for with this kind of really basic equipment if you're going to survive up there? Yeah, well, it won't come as any surprise to you, Julia. Yes, absolutely. In fact, in 2019, so only a few years ago, NASA for International Women's Day committed to do an all-female spacewalk on the International Space Station. Now, a few days before it happened, they had to cancel the spacewalk because they didn't have enough space suits to fit the women. Now, this is just such a major PR disaster, I think. But also, you know, I was, I was discussing this with my 93-year-old grandmother the other day, and she was like, you know what, I'm actually glad that it didn't go ahead because we don't want to be patted on the head as women or given this kind of token spacewalk to show gender equality. Issues around spacesuits, that should have been solved well before that that spacewalk. And when we have a think about the way in which um, these little details are overlooked, that's got major ramifications when you're sending people to space. And I think it really does illustrate that space and missions and spacesuits and everything hasn't fundamentally been designed with diverse bodies in mind. And if I could add one, you know, I mentioned Sally Ride earlier 
the U- United States' first female astronaut who was sent to space. At the time, NASA considered sending her to space for one week with 100 tampons. Now, the understanding that goes around what actually would women need in space, I think that was a really good example of, okay, we perhaps haven't thought this through from the most inclusive and diverse angle here. It's all kind of farcical, really, isn't it? Heavens of It is. <laughs> but if we can return now from being right out there, potentially orbiting Mars and come back to Earth, in your opening, when you talked about why all of this is important to look at through a gender lens, you talked about the technologies that we all use here on Earth every day. Can you flesh out for us the gender issues that we need to think about around that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, there are two kind of points to this. First is that a lot of our technology that we use here on space still heavily relies on on space. So this means that, you know, in building kind of a gender lens and women who are building the technology and then being able to apply the technology is really, really important. But the second is that space innovations that were originally created for use in space have also been redeveloped to be then applied on Earth. So I'll give a few examples. So we use GPS almost every moment of the day for all different kinds of things. Starlink and kind of connection to the internet is really critical and important. If we ever think about it, just even those two examples, and we're thinking about remote or rural communities, women across the Pacific, et cetera, we know that gender inequality is pervasive across the world. We know that people who are in rural or remote settings can face additional barriers. We know that reliance on these kind of critical infrastructure is really important for safety, for you know, alerting people when things go wrong, for education, for communications. All of these things evidently affect all of us, but because of the underlying disproportionate or gender inequality, it disproportionately affects women and girls in particular, as well as other minority or diversity groups that may be very reliant on these sorts of technologies. To think about then some of the space innovations, I mean, really, we've had everything from LEDs to pre-dried food, firefighting equipment, insulation, water filtration, artificial limbs. A lot of these sorts of innovations and kind of inventions stemmed from our research and innovations that were happening in space. I think that what's really important about this is that from what's been invented, we miss the potential on how to apply those innovations in a whole range of different capacities that could help everyone, but specifically help, you know, historically marginalised or, or disadvantaged communities. And secondly, have a think about what innovations we're missing out on just because women weren't in the room. And you might have seen recently, I think it was Ford or one of the big car companies in the lead up to International Women's Day, they put out this big trailer about them uh, designing cars for the first time. And, you know, they all looked the same and they were great and everything. And then the man who's driving the car realizes, hey, there's no safety features. All of the main features that we rely on in cars, like being able to look behind you in the rear view mirror, you know, airbags and, you know, all these other sorts of things, they're actually invented by women. So I like to think of that as a nice example. And feel free to have a look at that ad. I think it was really interesting example of when women weren't part of that innovation process, they might have missed out on these really critical innovations. I guess the last point I'd make is around climate change. So we we talk about and we know that climate change is a, a 
threat multiplier for gender inequality, which means that essentially all of the inequalities that women and, and other marginalised groups are currently facing is likely to get worse because of climate changes. And we already know that women are more likely to die in disasters and are more likely to be impacted um, as we're looking at heat waves and all of these other sorts of modelling. We've got some really great research being undertaken here at the Australian National University on using satellites for early bushfire detection and being able to understand, well, okay, if we can actually track this earlier, not only does that potentially allow us, if we've got diversity in the room, to be able to save cultural heritage better, which is a really important issue here in Australia, but also more accurately and effectively be able to give warning to communities that may experience other disadvantages and marginalizations. And we know, you know, from the floods here in Australia and bushfires and everything, you know, often because women have fewer resources to start with in the world, these sorts of really grave disasters can just amplify existing inequalities. So I think there's an enormous potential for all of this kind of space technology and innovations to be used to really better and benefit gender equality here on Earth. That's a fascinating set of interconnections, the interconnections between space and climate change. It's so interesting to hear about that. Now, I'm going to ask you to imagine that somehow you and I are meeting again in a hundred years' time. If you were imagining a very positive view of that future, what would it look like? What would the perspectives around space look like? And if it went badly, what would the difference be? This is a great question. And I always struggle a little bit with it because, you know, imagining the utopia, I mean, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we got there? Um, I keep coming back to the United Nations statistics around gender equality and how long it will take and thinking, gosh, I don't know that 100 years will be enough time at the kind of core of it. Because we know from research that diversity and gender equality in general is seen as important for two core reasons. So in Australia, because we are a democratic representative society, just we should be representative because, you know, if women are 50% or more of the population, then they should be represented and, and so on and so forth for all kinds of different diversity groups. So that's point one. But secondly, you know, we know that we're going to grab so many different benefits from ensuring that they're included, from higher job satisfaction to innovation, reducing groupthink, you know, improving consensus and collaboration, all these sorts of things. So I guess if we think about those as the kind of key benefits underpinning the utopia, then I would like to see that we have full representation across gender, but across, you know, sexuality and, and ethnicity, First Nations, all of those sorts of things. I'd like to make sure that we see their leadership too, and that we don't see what we'd call in research, which is horizontal segregation, which is that it looks like we've got gender equality and we looks like we've got 50-50 parity, but actually we see that women are often more dominated in admin roles or deputy roles or human resources roles. So I'd really like to see that representation kind of across the board in all different kinds of portfolios and leadership levels and so on. I also think that in this utopian future, we may have moved past, you know, needing to pick out gender as a specific lens through which to look at our world, because perhaps we have really ingrained diversity as a lens that we naturally apply. And that's certainly my hope 
so that we can really effectively look through the world with an eye of who will this benefit and who won't this benefit and who may get left behind. So I hope that that's really normalized. I also hope that women are able to benefit from the full economic benefits of the space sector. You know, I'll just repeat this statistic for you quickly because it always blows my mind. Less than 1% of total global procurement currently goes to women-owned businesses, even though in many cases, women are starting up more businesses than men, for starters. But also, I think that this is really worrying because in Australia, I think, you know, some latest predictions were that the space sector was going to outgrow the rest of the economy um, by 2024 and grow at an annualised 7.1%. Now, if that's the case, then Actually, we have an enormous opportunity, but we really need to be part of procurement funding, you know, those economic opportunities that will come from the space space sector. I find that the point would be around safety and experiences, right? Everyone wants to work in a workplace that supports who they are, that allows them to flourish and thrive, that is free from violence and abuse and discrimination and harassment. So I'd hope that that would be really normalized. And I think that Data is going to be the way that we help to get to this utopian future because having the evidence base on kind of what's the big problems that we've got right now and where do we need to kind of tackle our policy or other interventions, I think is going to be really critical for imagining this gender equal space future. It would be nice to see that, wouldn't it? It would be nice to be there in 100 years to see it. That may not be possible, but we can certainly make a contribution to building it now. And Elise, you are making a remarkable contribution to building it now. So thank you to you for everything that you do. And to listeners who have found this a fascinating conversation, please do check out sections of the conference, which will be available on YouTube. That will give you a rich depth of discussions all around space, gender diversity, that utopian future that we want to build. Thanks for a great discussion. Thanks so much, Julia. It was a pleasure. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute's furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.